Good morning, Creekside. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just have to say, man, it is so good to just be here worshiping with you guys. Um, it's like everything in the universe is conspiring to keep us apart, I feel like, you know. If it's not smoke, it's COVID. If it's not COVID, it's, you know, summer schedules. I don't even know, but I'm just so glad to be, like, present with you guys. Um, so glad for those of you that are joining us online to have you here, too. And I just, it's good. It's good for our soul. It's good for our connection. It's good to stand together side by side and just tell the Lord that he is good. And I, I, I love that. It's so much more meaningful than what I can do on my own. And I'm just thankful for that. Um, hey, kids, awesome to have you guys here with us. I'm so glad you're here, right? Yeah. Um, so kids, you, uh, you know, you, when we leave every Sunday and your parents ask you, how was kids worship today? And you're always like, it was so fun. It was amazing. And your parents, I know, are always like, yeah, I'm sure it was, but we had way more fun in big church than you did, right? So here's your chance to find out why big church is so fun. So kids, we're glad you're here. Parents, um, we're glad your kids are here too. So uh, having either had kids ourselves or been kids ourselves, we understand that kids sometimes make sounds and that's okay. So like stress level, take it down. We're all going to have a blast together. And, um, and there's even a couple times, kids, I'm going to ask you to help me out with a couple of things, okay? So we're going to get through this and have a blast. It'll be fun. Um, hey, so we're going through the upper room discourse with Jesus, okay? So this is John 13 to 17. We've been spending the summer doing this and just um, three weeks left. We're in John chapter 17 this morning. Three more weeks where we are now in this final section. And, um, and as a reminder, this is where Jesus, as he is, I mean, he's fulfilled his ministry. He's been with his disciples. He's done so much with them and for them and, um, and taught and healed and raised the dead, even so many amazing things. And now he gathers his disciples and he's just about to go to the cross, to offer himself in love for his people, to say, um, you're broken, uh, you're sinful, you're hurting, and here I am laying down my life to provide healing and hope and forgiveness for your sins and life to you. And so Jesus is just about to do that, but first he gathers his disciples together in this upper room. And, and what they've been doing is Jesus definitely teaches them. So he's explaining some things about the Spirit of God is going to come and, and what does it look like? What, how do you handle the persecution that's coming? He teaches them these things. He also teaches them about this importance of connection to him. We, in John 15, the vine and the branches stay connected to me, abide in me, live in me. Um, but what's fascinating, I think, too, is in addition to that teaching that he gives, the instruction that he gives them, Jesus also takes time in this really crucial time to get, get down and serve his disciples. It's not just about what he says, it's also about what he does. And so he serves them, he washes their feet um, and calls them to do the same thing. And then now in John chapter 17, at the end of this section, these five chapters, there's a whole chapter devoted to Jesus praying for his disciples. And I think that's beautiful because prayer for us often is the thing that we do when we can't do anything else, right? It's like, well, I don't know what to do with Afghanistan, so I'm gonna pray. And thankfully, there's people that are, you know, do know what to do, can invite us into that. But prayer doesn't have to be the last resort thing. Prayer doesn't have to be just like, well, you know, okay, I guess I can pray for you. No, I think the fact that Jesus, before he dies, spends a chapter of these five chapters in this discourse here, spends a chapter just praying for his people, I think shows us this is so important. And so here we get to listen in to the prayer that Jesus prays for his people, ultimately for us too, as we'll see um, and I think there's just so much we can learn and be blessed by in this. So I'm going to do the first five verses here, and we'll see how Jesus starts his prayer. 
So it says in, in John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, so Jesus prays for his people. And there's a word in these first five verses that he says a whole bunch of times. What word did you guys hear a bunch of times? Glory. Again and again, glory, glory, glory. And so Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. He talks about the glory that he shared with the Father from all eternity. Um, there's all this glory conversation that he's having. And so this is important to set in its context and to think through what is the glory of God. So in church settings, you know, we take it for granted. We talk about glory. We sing about glory. What does the glory actually mean? For me, a helpful place to start is in 2 Chronicles 7, okay? So 2 Chronicles 7, what happens is they built this temple. So it's, it's Israel, they're God's people, and God's saying, I'm going to live amongst you. I'm going to be like there with you. And so build me this temple, build me this house in the middle so that you can be reminded that I'm here and I'm your God and you can come to me. And so they build this magnificent, huge temple, and uh, Solomon stands there and prays, like, Lord, use this place and everything else. And then what happens in 2 Chronicles 7 at the beginning of it, it says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, this is intense, okay, imagine a church service like this. As soon as he finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. So how about that, you know? Pastor gets up to pray, and then all of a sudden, there's fire, and we all have to rush for the exits because we just can't stand to be in here anymore. That's what happened in 2 Chronicles 7. So what is the glory of the Lord? The glory is, uh, it, the, the glory came and filled the temple, and they just, they couldn't even be there. I think that this is helping us to kind of imagine God's glory as though it's some sort of like radiating light or something, right? It's not really clear, but the, the sense you get is God's glory comes down and it's like, well, we can't even like be here. We have to like run away. It's just too intense for us to be in the presence of this glory. It's kind of just radiating out. There's something about God where he's so holy, he's so exalted, right? He's so glorious that to even just like see a little bit of him coming down to be in a space is too much, and so they run, and they hide, they cover their faces, right? Um, a year ago, we were talking through uh, the book of Isaiah, and we, we went through key passages there, and in Isaiah 6 is this similar experience where Isaiah is, he gets this vision of the Lord in the temple, and the Lord is there, and he's sitting on his throne, and just the, the like hem of his robe is just filling the whole temple, and there's these creatures, these angelic creatures that are covering their faces, and they're flying, and they're just sitting there, and they're like screaming out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so there's another example of, man, God is so, like, exalted. He's so radiant. He's just so bright that we can't even, like, even angelic beings can't be fully in his presence. And so they're hiding themselves. And it's just saying, God, you're so much different and you're so much bigger and you're so much more powerful and you're so much better than all of us. We can't even, like, imagine it. We can't even face it. We can't even be in the same presence. That's the kind of thing that's, like, being yelled about and shouted about. 
Jump ahead to Revelation, and the, the Bible ends. In Revelation 4, another scene with God on his throne. And there's other angelic beings that are there, and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there's, there's these kings, these like elders that are there with crowns on their heads, and, uh, and who knows what all this is about, right? But they're just sitting there, and they can't be in God's presence again. They're falling on their faces. They're throwing their crowns down, and they're just worshiping him. And again, it's just God's glory is filling and so I think it's what God's glory is. I think it's this radiation, this light, whatever it is that's like there. Um, but also God's glory comes down to like his reputation. It comes down to like the fame that he has. It comes down to what we've heard about him. And so there's this glory about him that's like, you know, in the same way that the light shines out maybe from him, although who knows how much is symbolic of what, right? But there's this sense of like, okay, what we know about God, his, his reputation, he is glorious. He is amazing. He's huge. He's big. He's powerful. He's loving. All these different things. Okay, so we hear about God's glory. Now here's my question for us this morning. Have you ever experienced God's glory? Have you ever experienced it? So I'm seeing some nods. I'm seeing some, mm, let's just see where he's going with this, right? So Psalm 19 um, says this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the heavens, right, the heavens, like you guys haven't seen it in a while, right? But if the smoke was gone, the heavens are out there somewhere, right? And God's glory is up there. They're, they're sitting there shouting. The stars and the sky and the, and the created world is sitting there just shouting out about God's glory and how amazing he is and what a skilled creator and how powerful and how beautiful he is. It's just shouting all the time. And so the answer to the question is, yep, we have all experienced God's glory, Right? problem is for us as human beings is we're hard of hearing, we're, we're, we're kind of blind to it, and we go and go about our day and we worry about things like smoke and we worry about busy schedules and we worry about all this stuff, when meantime, everything in creation is just screaming out, God, you are so glorious, you are so amazing, look how big, look how powerful, look how awesome he is. And so this, this, this creation is screaming out about the glory of God, and it's not just big, right, it's, it's also small, it's all the details of everything. Okay, so Kids, if we went on a nature walk, so kids, are you, are you, I need you to help me out here. So if we went on a nature walk, okay, and we're out in the forest, and we find like a little piece of a log or something, and we rolled it over and looked underneath it, what do you think we'd find underneath that log? Bugs? What else? Yeah, 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 like worms and like gross stuff, right? Maybe like a salamander or something. I don't really know. So if you picture, you put, you, you roll it away, all the stuff scampers away, you pull down, reach down to the dirt, and you pick up a handful of dirt, right? And you imagine, like, what's in that dirt, right? There's probably little ants, tiny, tiny, tiny little ants, right? Little roly-polies, maybe, maybe worms. And all these things, right, they're small, and you don't really see them, and we don't think about them. They're, they're like, down on, on the ground, underneath our feet, and we don't really notice so much. But every single one of them, God designed, right? God made an ant. Isn't that crazy? He made an ant. He made a roly-poly. Roly-polies are fascinating. All these little bugs, all these little things that just do their thing kind of out of our notice. God designed all of those things, and they're sitting there. The, the, I think the Bible's telling us they're shouting about, man, God is amazing. He's glorious. He cares about the big things, and he cares about the little things. There's a verse in... Um, in Matthew, where he talks about how, I mean, God even cares about, like, the sparrows, right? He's going to care for us because he even cares about these, these little tiny birds. And I have to tell you, this week, uh, I came downstairs in the morning, and uh, I see out of the corner of my eye a flutter, okay? And there's a bird in our house. And I'm telling you, we're not pet people, okay? So it was like, oh, oh Lord, there is a bird in the house, okay? So this is like, you know, huge emergency, 
Laura's downstairs, and so we see it, and we're just kind of freaking out together. It flies into the bathroom. We're like, oh, boy. Like, and we thought for a second, maybe you seal off the bathroom, wait for it to die, and then, like, a year from now, we'll use the bathroom again. I don't know, but Laura, <laughs> Laura goes in with the fly swatter. I grab a broom, okay? And, uh, and Laura goes in. Like, I, I, some of you I know would have just walked up and, like, caught the bird, petted the bird, put it outside. I don't know how that's even po- – I don't know how. So – Laura goes in, and she's, like, in close to the bird, and, uh, like, graciously, um, like, I just want to empower her to do her thing. And so she goes in, (laughs) and she's swatting around with the fly swatter to get it to, like, come out of the bathroom. I've got the door open and everything, and uh, she's, like, shrieking, you know, which I would have been, I would have been way worse, way, way worse. (laughs) And so it came out, and I had to just do like this. I didn't even touch it, and it went right outside. It was amazing. But that little sparrow, okay, caught in our house. The the Bible actually says God cares about what happens to that little sparrow, right? God even cares about that little thing. I I sometimes wonder, does God care about me, right? And then here's this little bird stuck in my house for like, you know, part of a morning. It actually was there. We found some poop, okay? So it was there for a while, and we just somehow didn't notice it, but... So this is God's glory in in the small stuff, in the little stuff, right? But then picture this. Just imagine that someone like, you know you won the golden ticket and you got to ride on a spaceship with one of these billionaires that's traveling into space these days, okay? And so you get to sit in there with Jeff Bezos or with um, Elon Musk and you get to travel into outer space with them, right? Amazing, okay? And so you would go up and you'd fly out of there, it'd be super intense and you'd get into outer space and you'd look around and you'd see all of these stars, star upon star, galaxy upon galaxy, infinite, like you can't even get to the end of this, right? And just think, wow, God, you are so big. You're so massive. It's ironic, right? Because these billionaires, like they're such a big deal. They're so, they like, they love themselves. I guarantee it. They love, I don't know them, but they love themselves. They're so proud of their money and what they can accomplish. They're so like, look at this. I can go into space if I want to, right? But then to think, here's these big, important people, right? They get up just outside of our atmosphere into space, And here's this reminder that they are actually so tiny, right? And maybe they don't notice. They're looking down from space at all of us and thinking, look at how tiny these people are, right? And yet here's God, right, over the whole universe. Oh, look it. He crested the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, look at the little guy. It makes me think of the Tower of Babel. And it says, that, you know, they built this giant tower to the heavens, and then God, like, looked down to see what they were up to. Like, oh, how sweet. Like a kid with blocks. They built a tower, you know? So here's God. But the whole point is just, man, God is, like, even our greatest accomplishments are just, like, these tiny little insignificant things. I guarantee you that these billionaires, I'm sure they're great guys, um, have never been more insignificant than when they stood there in outer space amidst all the grandeur that God made. He is so huge and glorious and constantly is shouting about how great and how amazing and his glory that he had. And then here's, here's what this says. Okay, so this passage is talking about this glory of God. This is a big deal, the glory of God. For the readers, for these disciples, for anyone in the Jewish world reading this, the glory of God was a big deal. And here Jesus is saying that he's glorified God. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So what is the work that God gave Jesus to do? What was the work that Jesus accomplished, the work that brought glory to God? It was looking at us, right? Looking at human beings, flawed, sinful, imperfect, frustrated, incapable, right? Looking at us and coming to us and saying, I'm inviting you to have this relationship with God. I'm inviting you to have your sins be forgiven. I'm inviting you to know me and to be restored. So 
that work, not just the big uh, uh, galaxy and everything else, not just the tiny creatures that God made, but also the work that he does in our hearts of inviting us in to experience who he is and to have that healing. All of this just shows the glory of God. And then John says, or Jesus says as he's praying, something that would have been outright blasphemous. He says in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so if you want to know who Jesus is, man, he's saying, Father, I was there with you from all eternity. We shared this glory together. He's, he's showing this equality with God, this connection with God, this oneness with God, and just saying it is all about God's glory. And so Jesus is asking, Lord, glorify me so that I can glorify you. And uh, the whole thing, man, just points to how amazing God is. Now, there's, there's this crazy interplay with glory in this section. So I'm not going to turn any pages in my Bible here. Just from here, I can see this. In, in 17.1, the, um, the son is asking, Father, glorify the son so that the son can glorify the father, right? Then I look back in chapter 16, and in 16.14, it's saying the spirit of God is going to glorify the son of God. Okay, in, in 17 and verse 10, just a little bit further down, that uh, it says that we glorify God, so we're brought up into this whole thing. Down in verse 22 in chapter 17, the Son glorifies us, and that's a hard one for me to get my head around. How is, why is Jesus glorifying us? What does that look like? I'll figure it out before we get there, don't worry. <clears throat> there's, this, there's this interplay in glory where the Son is glorifying the Father, the Spirit's glorifying the Son, um, the, the Father is glorifying the Son. We're involved in that glorification process, and the whole thing is just this dance of just lifting up and holding up and saying, see how great, see how beautiful, see how amazing, and we're invited just to see and to know God, to experience what it's like. And here, here's, where, um, here's where this hits home to me in verse 2. So he, Jesus is asking Father, glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify you because, verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh. So here's Jesus, authority over everything, right? Power, dominion, authority, glory, right? What is he going to do with this power, with this authority? What is he going to do? It says it right there in verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. See, the thing about the glory of God is it lifts him so high and it makes him this object of worship and it takes our breath away because we see, God, you are so big and you're so good. And we have these moments where we have clarity and we realize how big and exalted and amazing he is, right? But what does he do with that glory? What does he do with that power? He grants eternal life to us. He invites us to know him. And this is the one that we know. And so Paul's going to, or sorry, Paul, what am I talking about? Jesus is going to go on and pray and I'm keeping verse 3 up there because it's so key in seeing, like, this knowing of Jesus and knowing of God. But he says in verse 6, what is this going to look like? So 6 to 10, I'm going to read it here. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So here is 
this call. Jesus is saying, God, you're so glorious, you're so big, and what have I done? I'm granting eternal life to them, which looks like them knowing you and them knowing me, and also I've manifested your name. I'm showing the world who you are. I'm inviting everyone. You're glorious, but I'm inviting them all to see you as you truly are. So what does it mean to, to see God clearly? So what does it mean to know him, okay? Because there's different ways that we use the word know. What does it mean to know God? And I'll just tell you right up front, it doesn't mean just knowing about him, although that's important. It's important to know about God. But scripture uses these, these intimate relational categories for what it means to know God. So here's, here's like four analogies that scripture uses often to talk about how we know God. So it talks about a subject knowing a king. That's a relational thing. He's our king. We belong to him. And so there's that type of knowing of him. Um, it talks about a son knowing his father. Okay, that's an even more intimate one. It talks about a wife knowing her husband, and that one's getting really intimate. And then it talks about a sheep being known or knowing a shepherd. Okay, so there's all these relational connection type of ways where it's not just studying, it's not just learning, um, but it's kind of finding out on a deeper level um, who God is. It's knowing him more than just knowing about him. So um, I've already kind of admitted with the bird story that my wife and I, we're not pet people. Okay, we're not good with it. We've had a couple fish. I won't tell you how it ended, but um, all drains lead to the ocean, okay? But our girls, um, our girls want nothing more in life than what? They want a dog, Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> this is not new. This has been a long time. And so we're just, we're not pet people and they're expensive and they've got hair and, you know, just all that stuff. And they, you know, they don't know how to use toilets. It's just, it's rough. And so, uh, so what we do, we're not unreasonable. What we did a while back is we, uh, we actually got um, a book about dogs for the girls. <clears throat> and it had pictures of like the different breeds and like their personalities and all that kind of stuff. And the girls, did you like the book? They loved it. No, they loved it. They loved the book. It, like, it worked for like a week, you know. Um, they, lo they, they just, they love dogs. And, you know, every time you see a dog sticking a towel out the windows, the girls are just glued to their windows like, oh, it's so cute. And like they just, they love them. And so the book was great. They got to learn a ton about dogs and the different breeds and everything else, right? But it didn't scratch the itch, right? They wanted not to know about dogs. They wanted a dog, right? They want to be able to cuddle it. They want to pet it. They want to call it a good boy or a good girl. And they want to spend time, like, knowing that dog. And I think that's a helpful distinction for me when I think about what does it mean to know God? Certainly knowing about him. Certainly textbooks that tell us who he is. Certainly reading the Bible in a way that helps us understand more of his character and his nature and what he's done. All of that is really important, right? But there comes that point where we have to transition from learning about God to knowing him. And that's relational. It's connection. It's flesh and blood. It's the same difference between seeing a picture of a dog in a book and being able to hug a dog and call him a good boy or a good girl. It's, it is that close connection. Often, though, in our Christian lives, often in church, we, we do tend to think of it as thinking about God, believing things intellectually about God. Um, J.I. Packer has this, this amazing classic book called Knowing God, and he says, if, if the decisive factor in Scripture was notional correctness, meaning like what we think about God, he says, then obviously the most learned biblical scholars would know God better than anyone else. But that's not the most important factor. He says, you can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. And a simple Bible reader and a simple sermon hearer who is full of the Holy Spirit, will develop a far deeper acquaintance with his God and Savior than more learned scholar who is content with being theologically correct alone. 
I think that's such a good reminder, right? Like, we could, we could figure out, guaranteed, we could do a test. We could figure out who in this room knows the most about God, okay? And some of you, I know, have spent your entire lives just, like, studying, no, 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 right? But who knows God? The closest, that's a lot harder to figure out, right? Because it doesn't, it's not about courses that you've completed. It's not about books that you've read. It is about who has connected, who has embraced, right? Who has, who has opened up their heart in a vulnerable way to say, Lord, like, show me more of yourself. Who's trusted him through hard times? All of these things are ways that we come to know God more deeply. I try to sketch out, like, this journey to know God. What does it look like? I, it's, I have to do these kinds of things because I was, I, was I was brought up in the church. Um, so all I've ever known in my life is church life and everything else. Um, but I try to sketch out what does it look like to go on this journey of coming to know God. I, I think it often, it starts with learning something about God. Maybe you have a, a spiritual hunger that you can't explain. Maybe you have a thought or a question that comes to the front of your mind and you, you didn't used to think about God, but all of a sudden he's there and you're wondering and you have this question. Maybe it starts with an epiphany, a realization. Maybe it starts with like Psalm 19 that we were talking about, about the heavens declaring God's glory and you start to think, how could all this just exist if there wasn't a God? So we start with these thoughts or these questions, right? Then we find ourselves asking more questions, and we learn from the other people around us. Ask them, what, what, what do you know about God? What is God like? How do I get to know him? I think then eventually we begin to test our knowledge of God in the good and bad times in life. So we know that God's gracious. We know that he's a comforter, but we test that then in a hard time, in a hard situation. We might begin to test our knowledge of God against other philosophies or world religions, like depending on how nerdy we are, right? We might do that and kind of weigh it. We can begin to ask if what we're learning about God really resonates deep down in our hearts. Like, does this feel true to me? Is this speaking to me? Does this feel right to me? I think eventually we learn to hear the voice of God, right? So we, we read scripture, we, we hear what he's saying, and we begin to discern, okay, that's what his voice sounds like. And we maybe test, experiment with the promptings that we get from him. We dig always deeper into scripture. We talk to each other. Uh, our prayer life becomes more conversational than just like a list that we ask God for things. And I think the point in all this is just like any relationship, our knowledge of God, it grows and it expands and it, it, it shifts, right? Like any relationship we have, it shifts based on the situation, based on our stage of life, based on who we are and what we're learning and what's happening around us. And so this is what the, like, to know God involves this journey and this adaptation and this morphing that happens over time. A.W. Tozer um, says, to know God is at once the easiest and the most difficult thing in the world. So how's that for a statement? It's the easiest and it's the hardest thing ever. And I don't know why, but I just resonate with that, right? It's so easy to know God, right? It's also really hard to know God. And so the invitation is there for us to, so Jesus is there and he's glorifying God and he's saying, you've given me this authority so that I can give eternal life to the people that you've given me. And what is eternal life? He says, eternal life is this. It's knowing God and it's knowing me, knowing Jesus. And I think some, that's a little tricky maybe to, to, to spin out, but I think what happens is eternal life, we tend to think of eternal life as everlasting life, okay? So think of we're going we're gonna to be in heaven one day with the Lord. And, and like day after day after day, year after year, century after century, millennial after millennium, we are going to experience everlasting life, life that never ends, never stops, and it's hard to think about, but I think that's how the Bible describes it. 
But that's everlasting life. There's also what he calls eternal life, which is a little bit different, and it's this. It means there's this life that we will experience forever, but it's this life that we'll experience with God together. That is the life of eternity, right? In eternity, we'll experience this life with God. And it's going to look like, you know, there's not going to be sin. There's not going to be death. There's not going to be smoke. There's not going to be, like, all the stuff that's, like, weighing us down and making life hard here. All that's going to be done, and we're going to be there, and we'll know him, and we'll experience him. We'll have this deep, personal connection with him. We'll get to walk and talk with Jesus. It'll be amazing. And so it's that life of eternity, that eternal life that Jesus says, I pulled that down from, from, from then when it's coming, when I fix it all. I'm pulling it back, and I'm offering it to these people now. You've given them to me, and I'm offering them the chance to now, in this time, in this place, to know me. And that's what eternal life is, to know God. And, and to, to know Jesus that has been sent by God. It's this beautiful thing that we get to experience now. And it's so good, and it's so important. Man, and it's such a gift that we get to experience him and not just know about him. One more, one more way of looking at this that, um, that I think is great, okay? So this is a philosopher named William Barrett. He's talking about existence and then theorizing about our existence, okay? So hang on, it's not going to be that hard. But he says, these are, these are not one and the same. Existence and our theories about existence, they're not the same any more than a printed menu is an effective form of nourishment as an actual meal, okay? So think of it like this. Think of the menu and think of the meal. So kids, help me out one last time, okay? So if you're going to a restaurant with your family, um, it's fun, you get to go out and everything else. Do you like the menu at the restaurant where you go? Okay, yes, right? Because there's like, there's like games and there's like different things you can draw and color or whatever, but then there's the part where, like, you know, you're busy coloring and your mom or your dad's like, okay, tell me what you want to eat, right? And you have to look at what does it say? What are my options here for what I'm going to eat, right? And I know you all go to cheese pizza right away, but you might look at the different options and just kind of see. So maybe you're reading the, the description of macaroni and cheese, okay? And you're like, oh, interesting. They've got the mac and cheese. Let's read what it says. Um, we have a, a mild cheddar cheese um, melted over our house-made macaroni noodles, Paired with our sliced bagged apples in your choice of apple juice or orange Fanta, right? So kids, you can do, read that and you're like, hmm, mac and cheese sounds great, right? Or if it's not that, it's a burger or something. And you read the description, right? But what's so much better than reading about the food is actually getting to eat the food, right? And I think in the church world, sometimes we become menu people where we read about and we describe and we talk about but we don't become meal people where we jump in and we embrace and we test it out. So, there, man, there's so many things we know about God and so many things that we know about Jesus. And, and in church, we will time and time again, we'll talk about him. We'll read the word of God. It's so important for us, right? But the challenge always, both in our time on Sunday mornings, in our small groups, and in our personal lives, the challenge is always to take it from the menu and let's get down to the meal. Let's take everything we learn about God. And we hear that he's forgiving. We hear that he's gracious. We hear that he loves us. And let's dive into that meal and talk to him and experience that love and that grace and that forgiveness. And man, we'll spend the rest of our lives just in that knowledge of God that comes close in. And here's, here's where I want to end. He says all of this, man, he uses this language in verses 6 to 10 about how these are people that God has given to Jesus. He says in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. And there's this whole thing. They, they, 
we belong ultimately to God. I think this year has been a weird year of disconnection. It's been a weird of kind of feeling a little bit homeless. Like, so for different ones of us, it's different things, right? Maybe like church feels different and weird and strange and you feel a little bit out of place, right? Maybe like your politics, you used to feel like you had a political party that made sense to you and all of a sudden you feel like, what is even going on? And I feel like it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or something else. Like everything's changing all the time and everyone's feeling a little bit out of place with things that used to feel comfortable, right? Um, it, it doesn't matter. Maybe you're friends. Like, I see it on social media all the time, right? You've got friends that you've had forever, and all of a sudden, we've been given all these things to disagree about, right? Like, vaccines or not, masks or not, um, you know, do we go hang out if there's smoke outside? Do we, like, there's just so many things that we can disagree about, and I see it when I log into social media of people that have been friends for a long time that are suddenly just butting heads, and we feel disconnected, and we might start to feel like we don't belong anywhere, And there's this good word at the end of this passage for us, which is simply this, that, man, we belong to God. We belong to him. We are his. And Jesus is saying, Father, they were yours, and you've given them to me. And Jesus is saying, I'm taking these people that you've given me, and I'm using them to glorify you. We're bringing glory to God. And verse 10 ends like that. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And man, I find so much rest in the way that last phrase is stated. I am glorified in them. He's not saying, man, when Creekside Church becomes the best church in the area, when these people get their act together, when they get their theology straight, then I'm going to be glorified in them. No, he's saying, you've given them to me. They were yours. You gave them to me, and I am glorified in them. I think in the same way that a tree that's sitting outside um, is not trying to bring glory to God, I don't think. I don't think there's intentionality there. But it is glorifying God because God made it to. I think in the same way, man, we, we can't help it. We belong to God. He's given us to Jesus. We bring glory to him because he's working in us and he's doing it. And, of course, let's strive all the more to bring more glory to God and to Jesus. That's what Jesus does as he does the work of the Father. But, man, we're invited into that, and we are, man, his handiwork. We are his people. In the same way that all creation is shouting out about the glory of God, whether we, whether we are intentional about it or not, we are speaking. Our, the way that we're designed, the way that we're made, the way that we reflect his image is shouting about who God is, and we can join in intentionally with our voices, with our lives, and say, yes, yes, God is glorious. He's amazing. And, man, we get to spend the rest of our lives just digging into that truth and getting to know him. And it's a journey. It's a roller coaster. It has deserts and valleys and oases and seasons that are just rich. But, man, it's just such a beautiful journey that will take us the rest of our lives. So I have talked quite a bit. I've said a whole lot of words, and uh, the smoke's not doing my voice any favors. But let's take what I said about God, about Jesus, and we're going to enter a time of reflection now. And so I'm going to invite Chelsea to come on up here. And um, Chelsea has often been helping us to, like, just sit with some of these truths and process them and, um, and just allow them to kind of become real to us. So the invitation here is to, um, to know God, to know Jesus, and let's actively do that now. So thanks, Chelsea.